The great news is the sermon today was an absolute thrill to kind of prepare for. Does science and Jesus conflict? And I spent so long reading and then just as you feel like you get to the bottom of something a new rabbit trail goes off and you start reading down that rabbit trail and then another one would come and you would read down that rabbit trail and you would look up and it would be dark and you would go where am I I haven't even reached the bottom yet and I would continue reading more and more does science and Jesus conflict and the answer is no blessings have a great Sunday let's pray Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you for the opportunity to stand together on your word um, and that there is absolutely no conflict between science and Jesus. Um, We thank you for the opportunity that I get to spend hours researching this and come to that conclusion based on your word. Amen. All right, um, coffee machine is on. And if you guys want some prayer, no. I, as I was working through this, we're going to work, by the way, through Genesis 1, chapter 1, verse 1, which is found on page 2. No, it's found on page 1 of your Bibles. I actually think the question that people ask when they ask this, is there conflict between science and what the Bible says? is more a question about how do we trust the authority of Scripture without appearing unnecessarily foolish in the face of contemporary science? Right, I I actually think that's probably the question that most people want to do. And the first question we say is, should we take the Bible literally? And the answer to that question is unequivocally there is not a single solitary person in this room who takes the Bible literally. There's not a, not a single solitary person. No, I don't need to be arrested. No one ever takes the Bible literally. Uh, John 6.35, I am the bread of life. That doesn't look like a loaf of bread that brings life. John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. I have never seen Jesus uh, painted or portrayed as a flashlight, a headlight, a candle, a bonfire. John 10, 9. I am the door. He certainly doesn't look like a door up there, does he? John 15, 5. I am the vine. Again, I have never seen Jesus painted as a grapevine. The thing is, is we all understand metaphors, don't we? Jesus is not literally a door. But he does represent a real doorway to hope, to everlasting life. Jesus is not literally a flashlight, but he is the light that brings hope to the world. That is a very real thing. 
Jesus is not literally a vine and we are not literally the branches. But for us to be grafted into that vine, suddenly we have sustenance and nutrients. Very real things depicted in a metaphor that represent real things. We have life in Jesus. So we understand literary devices. I want to say uh, I thoroughly enjoy a guy called John Lennox. And so if you ever have the good pleasure of watching any YouTube clips of John Lennox, one of the reasons I like him is he's very smart. He's an Irishman, um, so he's hilarious, and he's got that dry comedy that I thoroughly enjoy. Um, and he has all these tales about C.S. Lewis, which I, I thoroughly love C.S. Lewis, that he weaves into a lot of his stories. Um, and he has a lecture called Seven Days That Divided the World. And it is about Genesis 1 and how we read it. The other person I really appreciate is a local. He's he's a Western Sydney University lecturer called Luke Barnes. And he wrote a book with an atheist professor called A Fortunate Universe. And that talks about fine-tuning. And uh, the way they do it is they would have a conversation about fine-tuning, which is a scientific term, and then debate it, debate it from two different perspectives. And as you read A Fortunate Universe, you see that the... I feel, as I read it, and I read it through the lenses of Jesus, right? Like I'm a Christian guy. <laughs> There's a bent to my life. It would seem that the atheist guy seems to become more and more amicable to Jesus being an author behind this, okay? Okay. Uh, I think both of those are brilliant, and I'm not nearly as brilliant as either of those two individuals. But let's have a look at Genesis 1. Our first mention of day comes at verse 5. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and morning, and there was the first day. The first mention of day is not 24 hours. First mention of day is for the period of light, which depending on summertime is like 16 hours, and wintertime is probably closer to 12 hours. And then the second mention of day happens in the very same passage, the same word, by the way, in Hebrew, the exact same word, um, and it's for 24 hours potentially or a period of time, right? So we've had two mentions of day and they're both different, same word. Um, Second mention, uh, sorry, if you flip to the end part of Genesis 1, what does God do on the seventh day? Because he creates in six days, not seven days. What does he do on the seventh day? Right, yeah. So 2-2. By the seventh day, he's resting. How long does that day go for? It doesn't close. Bold call here, the implication maybe is that the seventh day has continued to today. Because while God has rested from creating, and Mal and I can have a big argument about this because he hasn't stopped creating because he is infinite, but if he has stopped the work of creation, 
and now is in the process of redemption, that the seventh day is still continuing and therefore is also not 24 hours. You see, in chapter 2, verse 4, we get this idea that when God created, the Hebrew word there is like back in the day, God created. And so we get another version of day. Back to Genesis 1, chapter 1. Verse 1, in the beginning. Now, the tense for these two verses, in the beginning, uh, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. These two verses in the Hebrew use a completely different tense. And the point of this is to say that they chronologically kind of sit before what happens that come after this. Does that make sense? So one and two have a completely different tense. And therefore, the whole implication is this happened first-ish and then the rest follows. Okay? The thing is, is what do we do with it all, right? I mean, this is not meant to be a university lecturer and I'm certainly not equipped to be a university lecturer. But the point is, is that there seems to be a multitude of different uses for the word day. And the question is, is what the purpose of these two chapters, okay? And if you were in the ancient Near East, you would have a lot of creation accounts, right? Is that you would have battles between gods and slain gods would become night and other gods would become day and it's out of chaos and violence that creation is born, okay? You don't even have to look too far away here in Australia. If you look at Dreamtime narrative, right? What it, Dreamtime narrative indicates that there are battles between gods that spew forth life out of death and it's chaotic, This was a revelation because the indication here is not that there is chaos and violence that brings about the world, but that God created it. And how do each of these days end? And it was good. The suggestion for a comparison to an ancient Near East account is this incredibly ordered, structured good and God purposely creates that is astounding it all happens with God speaking it into existence and we get hung up on time when is humanity created in this Sorry? Yeah, right? Day six. But the creation of humanity is different, isn't it? Of all the created things, where does humanity sit? At the top. Created in the image of God. Set apart. Special. Anointed. Do we see that today? 
How many bear cities have we visited? How many whale governments do we know about? Right? Is that this is where I think there are some nods to reality that the Bible clearly and distinctly shows. You know, honey badgers didn't make these chairs. Human hands crafted the building. Is that there's a real obvious distinction between the human species and all other species. And that seems to sit in parallel with science. What's the longest word that we have? It's the human genetic code. It's 3.4 billion letters long. Do you know where it's written? On each of you. It's fascinating to think of the concept that God speaks. And the longest word that he spoke is there and 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 there. Not by chance or necessity or chaos or cataclysm, but from an intelligent mind with purpose. If we were all in a room right now, what would be our big debate in the 16th century? Does the earth move? Right, that's the big debate. If we're in a 16th century, there's a big debate. Does the earth move? And if you like Luther, he contends that the earth does not move. Why? Because 1 Samuel 2, 8 decrees it. Right? The pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he's set them. He's set the world on them. Okay? We know that the Lord is immovable and unshakable and pillars are pretty immovable and unshakable and the world is sat upon them, if we are sitting in a room in the 16th century, we point at Samuel and say, the world does not move. And these crackpots who want to suggest that the world is revolving, how dare they? Because the Bible says it doesn't. Right? How dare they? How dare they come in here while we are making fine monk beers and we will all kick on to the pub afterwards and they want to tell us that the world rotates. Well, you tell me a pillar that rotates and I will point you to, to Samuel. And say, how dare you? We're all laughing now. Why? Because the world rotates. <laughs> Very clearly rotates. Right? We learn about this. We learn about the solar system and a galaxy. Do you know what I learned this week? Is that the sun is shooting through the universe... At 600 kilometres a second. Okay? So if we're rotating around the sun that is shooting through the universe at 600 kilometres a 
second, we're not actually orbiting. We're in like a helial vortex pattern shooting through the universe. Yeah, exactly. If you look at the big picture, you go, there's got to be an intelligent mind doing something here because to orchestrate a giant burning furnace moving at 600 kilometres a second. Was that here to, is it Port Macquarie, the furthest one? Every second. You just moved. 600, 600, 600, 600, 600 kilometres. While we're circling the sun and not running into any of the other planets. We go, wow. It's pretty creative. So then how do we look at Genesis 1? Because I'm going to get someone to stop me with coffee afterwards and say, how dare you? (laughs) Well, there's eight ways to read Genesis. Okay, if you believe that God did it in sequence as described in Genesis 1, you would be a concordist and you would form into one of these four categories. You would be a young earth interpretation, you might be a gap theory interpretation, you might be a day-age interpretation, or you may be an appearance of age interpretation. Now, if you're a non-concordist, and I like to be antagonistic, okay, and you are just saying he's kind of emoting the order of things as opposed to doing it in strict chronological order, then you might be proclamation interpretation, creation poem interpretation, kingdom and temple interpretation, or ancient Near East cosmology. Not for your makeup. Needless to say, none of these interpretations seem to conflict with the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord and King, that he he will at some stage resurrect the dead and that we've all got hope for eternal life. And so the challenge becomes, well, we, where are we putting the stake in the sand? What if, what if the continued revelation of God's word only helps to inform or confirm what we see in science? Could you imagine a person, you know, we're talking, what, 5,000 BC maybe, who's reading something about, who's, who's being taught something about Yahweh. We don't, we don't have the scientific methodology for explaining that. So if you're trying to explain the unexplainable in a way that they might remember, how do you do that? You wrap it up in song or in poetry Right? It's like um, I, t- I was terrible at learning Greek. Right? And there's a um, Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta, Epsilon, Mu, Nu, Rho, Omicron. That's where it came from. Um, the way I remember stuff is song, prose, poetry. I mean, this is a whole other sermon on the strength of the arts, but not the place now. The creative will dial it back for the season. We want to spend a lot of time manufacturing conflict rather than pointing out the very things that God is shown to be true. Creation has order. Creation has purpose. Creation is innately good. 
there is a fine-tuning to what has been done. I think um, the way I like this kind of explained to me, if I was to bring a Model T Ford in, first of all, all the car heads in the room would get very excited. It's a Model T Ford. It's a beautiful car. Model T Ford is really important. Why? Because it's our first kind of mass-produced internal combustion engine. Yeah? And I, I brought it in here. And I said to you, you can choose. Here's the first thing. Here's the, the science behind the internal combustion engine and the mechanical engineering that goes on on it. And I can explain it all to you. You know, I'm like, you can believe in that. Or this is Henry Ford who created it. But you can only believe in one and not the other. <coughs> you would go, that's ludicrous. Wouldn't you? Is that when you talk about scientific explanation the internal combustion engine and mechanical engineering, it does not exclude personal agents. You can have both. You can say, here is Henry T. Ford, who invented the Model T Ford, and here is all the science that he used to do it. And because we understand literary genre, we also have to understand that the Bible has never ever claimed to be a scientific textbook. You can have both. The challenge is, is when you stake a position in the sand that is hard, you'll find it very difficult to navigate around the realms of science. And you may find yourself at some stage pointing at Samuel and screaming at it, the pillars. We don't know that not to be true. Like we're, we're also, by the way, while we're hurtling through space around a giant flaming orb at 600 kilometres an hour while we're also doing the orbit of that sun, not crashing into any other planets or comets, the internal part of our um, planet is made up of giant hot molten magma that's protected by a thin crust. So, like, you know, for everyone who's like anxious about losing their job, I dare say the fact that you are hurtling through the universe at an unreasonable speed, seconds away from burning hot magma under your foot seems like a bigger threat if we also don't understand that there was a finely tuned process by which God created everything and that there is harmonious balance. Yeah? Okay? So, to conclude, does science and Jesus conflict? No. Not at all. And I think one of the great joys we have in our faith is um, probably one of the things Anthony and I enjoy is learning new stuff. 
And I don't want us to ever lose that desire to learn. The hardest thing about learning is it requires humility and sacrifice of ego, right? And what I mean by that is if you are passionate about a perspective that may be wrong, the only way for you to learn is to have the humility to say, I've made a mistake and I am now learning through that process. Right? God humbly creates these opportunities for us to do that. Doesn't he? Time and time again. Like while we were still in sin, Christ died for the ungodly. There's an ultimate act of learning there. It's the ultimate act of uh, humility and self-sacrifice in the face of whatever ego there might be. He demonstrates it first. And that's why I find learning so good and so difficult. Because you spend so much time going, gosh, I'm a ghastly moron. <laughs> right? And I, I've not done a doctorate, you know. Some of in the room. But one of the things you find is that the very sphere of what you thought you know is much bigger. And your sphere only gets a little bit bigger. So you spend a lot of time realizing there's a whole lot more you didn't know when you keep on learning. And so I come back to the point, there's no conflict between Jesus and science. There's just an opportunity for us to learn more about how good and great his creation is. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks and praise um, for the opportunity to learn, for the opportunity to grow, and for the opportunity to love. Uh, Lord, we pray over Christmas, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, Lord, that that might be a celebration of joy of you. Lord, bring those in our community into our midst who only attend your church twice a year and then radically transform their hearts for love for you. Lord, allow us to continue to grow to be loving and welcoming, encouraging and inviting. Amen.